Hey, um, as we get ready to get going again in Ephesians, I asked you last week uh, to pray for us. We're in the middle of a series, and we're talking a little bit about finances and money uh, together as a church. And you need to hear me say that wasn't that wasn't a pastoral ask for prayer. That wasn't the thing you just do and rub over the top of a conversation. I'm serious. I'm asking you to pray. There's probably no other conversation that you have in the middle of a church that strikes more at the heart of people and makes people angrier than when you talk about money, which I'm just going to suggest that if it means that much to us, then we probably better figure out how to obey God in that part of our lives. But here's the deal. Uh, We're going to do this for another two weeks. We're going to keep talking about that. And I'm asking you, because if there's any crowd within the church who hopefully gets this conversation... I'm hoping it's this crowd. And I'm asking that you on Sunday when you're here and spread out in the crowd that you would literally pray for the people who are sitting in your radius, who are sitting around you and say, God, please, please, please change people's hearts on this topic. Because at the end of the day, I don't care how good a sermon I do, people aren't going to change their hearts about this unless the Spirit of God changes their hearts about this topic. So I'm asking you to be our secret agents. I'm asking you to pray. And here's the other thing you just need to know. When, when you get to stuff that bothers people and you start stirring that pot, I guarantee you someone's going to grump. It's just, it's, it's part of being a good church, especially if you're a Baptist. So, um, uh, and I just want you guys, uh, just in case you hear that grump or hear someone saying something, I, I want you to be prepared maybe for the conversation and even head it off a little bit before they send the email to me. And, uh, Here's what you need to know. Um, Your church has been unbelievably conservative and tight on how we've done money. I may have led us into a mistake, and and if I did, I did. Um, when, When things began to get tight back when money was going down, my call, my leadership to the staff was, guys, we're going to make all of our cuts on the back 40 We're going to do it where people aren't affected by it, where people don't have to see it. We're going to make all the sacrifice, and we're going to try to keep the experience of Cornerstone as high level as we possibly can. In retrospect, maybe that wasn't the greatest uh, thing to do, because I think what's happened in the process of that is people have said, well, hey, apparently we're doing okay, because everything seems to be going on like everything's been going on, and so there must not be an issue. What you need to know in the backside of things is that over the last two years, we've cut staff by over 40%. We've gone year after year after year without giving raises. We've reduced retirement benefits. Some years we've paid none. This year, I think we're paying half a retirement benefit uh, to our staff. And in the mid- we, we've taken away friend days. We've canceled Harvest Festival. We keep, we keep, we keep. And what you need to know is the issue at hand, and I'm just going to say this to you honestly as your pastor, the issue at hand is not spending. The issue at hand is giving. And in the midst of, uh, you get that the economy has declined, so every church is struggling with giving. Every church is struggling with giving right now, especially in the Phoenix area. So consider this, in the midst of every church struggling with giving, but here's the delta and the difference. The average church in the Phoenix area, guess how many people tithe? Guess what percentage of people tithe in the average church in Phoenix? Huh? 
9 to 10%. At Cornerstone, 6%. So not only are we all living on reduced amounts, and we're living on reduced amounts just like every other church in the Phoenix area, but we're living on 60% of the reduced amount. And we've taken all those hits on the back 40. We've tried not to do them up front where people would feel them. But what you need to know is, is that where we are now, there's, there's just no, there's, there's no way to go forward and not make drastic cuts and drastic changes. We've got to at least get to, the, to that 9, 10% in our giving. It's got to happen. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When you hear the people grumping, you're just going to need to say, you don't understand. This is not a spending issue. This is a giving issue. Uh, this is this is not a greediness issue. This is our heart issue, and we've got to come up with a good answer to this. So I'm going to ask you guys to do. I'm just, I'm, and you, you're hearing me make an honest, sincere prayer while we're having that conversation in the room, because I'm going to trust that this room is full of people who give faithfully and generously the tithe. But as we're sitting in that room, I'm going to ask you to pray for the people around you that their hearts would be changed on this topic. Okay. And uh, God would do something in our church. Can we do that real quick right now? Can we stand up right now and just pray about this real quick? And then we'll hop into Ephesians. Let's do that. Hey, God, I, I just, I want to pray for our church. And I, I I'm just going to ask God that, that you, you would make our hearts so unspeakably generous that we would just have such passion and love for your kingdom, that we would say, why in the world would I ever let the mission of God go in need? And I, and I, just, I just choose not to be disobedient in this area of my life. I will not love money more than my Savior. And God, I'm going to pray that that would be infectious, that you would take a church that right now is struggling to obey you in this particular area of their lives, and you would so turn our hearts in the next couple of weeks together that we literally would get to the front of this conversation and that other churches would look to Cornerstone and say, why are your people so bought in to what God is doing? Why are the people of Cornerstone so generous uh, to give to the cause of God? And that, God, we would move from the back of the pack to being the example of how a church ought to live in this area of generosity and of obedience in the tithe. God, help us Help us on Sunday as we have this conversation. Help hearts that maybe have been hard for 10, 20, 30 years. Christians who said, I will never obey God in this to change their minds. To bow the knee and say, I'm going to choose to be obedient no matter how scary it is. I'm going to choose to obey God in this. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you guys are my secret agents. Sunday, pray, pray, pray. Okay? All right. If you just do this on Sunday, I'll know you're praying. Okay. All right. All right, here we go. It's Ephesians chapter 2. And if I'm remembering right, I think we got through verse 14. Does that sound right? Yes, no, maybe. Yes. Okay, so... We need to start on verse 15. Yes? Okay, all right. We're all, all right, here we go. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the law, so it's talking about Jesus, with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, 
thus making peace. Okay, so let's go back to that first part of the phrase. By abolishing in his flesh the law. What does that mean? That Jesus abolished the law. Did he complete it by being the sacrifice instead of the, the substitute lamb sacrifices that they were made? Okay, he completes the law. Does he, what does it mean when he says, and I, I'm agreeing with you, I think you're right, he completes the law. He abolished, I think he abolishes the law, the law, the Ten Commandments, the laws that the Jewish people were living by at the time when okay. Jesus uh, died on the cross. It took away the laws that everybody had to live okay. by. Okay, so that's, th- there's your question. So think about this for a second. If Jesus abolishes the law, uh, does that mean he abolishes thou shalt not murder? So now it's okay, apparently, to murder. Huh? Oh, hey, we need the screen up in the back. Okay, there we go. All right, very cool. All right, thou shalt not murder. All right. So here's the question. If Jesus abolishes the law, does that mean that all the things, in other words, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, is all that gone? Because Jesus abolished the law. Well, well, well then, you're, what, do you, what does it mean then in this passage if it's saying he does not abolish the law? He abolished judgment. Okay? Say it. to say that again? Yeah, say it again. Uh, so, I mean, if you look a couple passages earlier, the talking of Jew and Gentile and how Jews were citizens, Gentiles were not. So if he abolishes the law of citizenship, everybody becomes a citizen through his sacrifice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not sure exactly what would qualify as the law of citizenship. So good stab, I think, but I'm, I'm not sure what would qualify as that. Did he abolish the price of the law, which is death, basically, because nobody could keep it? Yeah. He surely pays the price. You know, matter of fact, Paul even says, hey, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't have known that I was a sinner in the first place. The law, the law could never save me, Paul says, but the law showed me that I needed saving on the deal. All right. Let, let, all right. We're going to take another stab and then we'll see. Did he, he abolished the law that only priests could approach God. And so now everybody has access because the, that wall was taken down in the temple. Partly. Sort of. All right, let me, see, let me see if I can help us, okay? This, here's why I wanted us to talk about this for a second. Here's why I wanted to struggle with this, because this is, this, is, uh, this is confusing for us. And a matter of fact, you'll have a lot of people who don't like some of the commands that happen in the Old Testament go, whoa, 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 that's just the law, and Jesus did away with the law. But here's what you need to know. Jesus, when he was, when he was addressing this, said, look, 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 I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to... Fulfill the law. Okay? So, but here's what you need to know. How, how do you fulfill thou shalt not murder? I don't know how you fulfill that. You can obey that, but I'm not sure how you fulfill that. But here's what you need to know. There really are kind of two sides to the law. There is the moral side of the law, okay? Which is, you know, thou shalt not murder. Uh, thou shalt not steal. And what you need to know is, is that the moral side of the law is still law because it's moral. In other words, Jesus didn't do anything that, think about this, 
By dying on the cross, Jesus didn't do anything to make that which used to be immoral suddenly okay to do. Does that make sense? If it was wrong to murder in the Old Testament, it's still wrong to murder in the New Testament. Okay? There's nothing that Jesus did on the cross that made things that used to be immoral suddenly moral to do. Does that make sense? Are we following so far? Do we care? All right. Okay. You, you, you will in a moment. So here's what you need to know. When Jesus, when these statements come through and Jesus says, look, 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 I, I didn't come to, to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. He's not talking about the moral requisites of the law. That's not what he's talking about. It was wrong to steal back then. It's wrong to steal now. None of that has changed. But there is a portion of the law that the Jews lived under that you and I do not live under. In other words, I still can't murder anybody. I still can't steal. But there's portions of the law that you and I can absolutely disregard and disobey today. They are no longer applicable for today. What part of the law was that? The what? In theory, here's what you need to know. Okay, so I'll, I'll, go ahead and set it in the microphone so we get on, on recording. Blood sacrifice. The blood sacrifice, okay? So what did we say before that, though? Didn't we say eye for an eye, tooth I for a tooth? Eye for eye, but I say if somebody uh, slap you on this cheek, turn the other right. cheek, forgiveness, he was talking about. Right. So, okay, so, so let's, let's go there for a second. Here's the deal. Did you know that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is still true? It's still true. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is exactly what the person who slugged you in the eye deserves to get slugged in the eye back. They do. That's what they deserve. That's what would be just. Jesus, though, called you and I instead to show grace. It doesn't change the fact that that's what the criminal deserved. So, in other words, if somebody murders, do they forfeit their life? Well, yeah, they still forfeit their life. That's still justice. Jesus just simply said, instead of showing justice, would you offer mercy? Which, if you think about it, that's exactly what he did on the cross, right? You and I deserved what? Death. You and I deserved hell. That's exactly what we deserve. Nothing changed about what we deserve. Jesus then chose to offer grace. To give us what we did not deserve. But the reality is, guys, and you just need to know, every one of us, if truth be told, if justice was going to be served, deserved hell. It's just God instead offered grace. So the law, that the moral law did not change. The, the penalty of the law did not change. Jesus just rescued us from the penalty of the law. Okay? So here, the moral law does not change. The moral law is not different. But here's what did change. The ceremonial law. Okay, so all the dietary parts of the law, all of the religious rites of the law where they would go and they would take a lamb and they would sacrifice it at the temple. And and here's what you need to know. And even Jesus says, look, 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 this is not about doing away with the ceremonial part of the law. This was about me fulfilling the law. Because you ready? Everything that you did in that ceremonial part of the law. Okay, not talking about the moral part. Murder is still murder. But. Everything you did when a man took the, a, a, a lamb that was spotless and blameless and brought that and put it on an altar and l- sacrificed that lamb's life, 
I'm going to go do on a cross because I'm going to be the spotless lamb and I'm going to go to a cross and I'm going to die for your sins. So everything you were doing in the Old Testament to play act a savior, I am the savior. You don't have to play act anymore because the real savior is here. I came to fulfill that part of the law and now it would almost be silly. Let me, let me do this. Girls, okay? When you were young, okay, I think maybe this will work, maybe it won't. When you were, when you were, we'll do it with the guys. We'll do it with the guys. Okay, maybe we'll go this way. Guys, when you were young, how many of you had uh, toy cars? Okay, and, and you remember when you were young, eight, seven, eight, nine, you take, you know, and you'd go in your room and you'd build like uh, obstacles and little tracks, and, you know, and you drive the car. How many guys did that? Okay. When you got older, how, how many of you guys in here go, I still have that plastic toy car and I go in my room and how many guys still do that? Come on. Okay. One, one right here. All right. So other than the one weirdo in the room, uh, why don't we do still do that guys? Cause now we've got real cars. Why would we still play with the plastic car? We've got See, what we were doing with, as little boys is we were pretending what was going to be real someday in our lives. It's like little girls playing with dolls. The reason women usually don't normally play with dolls is because you were pretending something that was going to be real someday in your life. That's exactly what Jesus is saying about the ceremonial law. When you took that lamb and put it on the altar, you were pretending something that one day was going to be real that a lamb would come and die on a cross and save you. You don't need to keep playing with the lamb. The lamb has come. I did not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law in your lives. Does that make sense? Sort of maybe? All right, sleep on it. We'll get there. Okay. All right. Um, Back to verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. What were the two men? We talked about this a little bit last week. Jew and Gentile. Gentile, Okay? Jew and Gentile. They are no longer Jew and Gentile because in the church, we are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We all now stand in front of God on equal status. Okay? All right, microphone. Yep. Uh, Lynn, some people believe that tithing is uh-huh. Old Testament. Yeah. And that's their reason for not tithing. Can uh-huh. you discuss that in the framework of moral versus ceremonial? Yeah. Um, actually, well, okay. All right. Did you, hear, did you hear the question? How many heard the question? Some people believe that tithing uh, is done away because it's an Old Testament law, and now we're in the New Testament. And therefore, tithing would not be a New Testament principle because Jesus fulfilled the law. That's interesting. Okay. All right. So let's, let's try that for a second. Grab your Bibles. Go to Genesis. Okay, give me a second here because I wasn't planning on this one. Thank you very much. All right. Okay. We're going to the story a lot. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, Genesis chapter 14. 
Genesis chapter 14. Okay, here's the story. Um, uh, Abraham and Lot have separated. Uh, some foreign armies have come and they have invaded. And in the process of invading, they have taken Lot hostage. Abraham hears about this. He goes off. He takes his men. He conquers the armies. He wins the battle. Okay? Let's go to verse 17. I think we're okay there. So Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Ketalorim, and the kings allied with him, and the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Seba, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham, saying... Now, here's what you just need to know, and we won't argue this for against tonight. Many, many Bible scholars believe this king of Melchizedek, priest of Salem, is actually a theophany, which means a pre-incarnate image of Christ. That this is Jesus in this moment that Abraham meets. Okay? Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave him what? A tenth of everything. So here's Abraham. He's just gone out. He's had this amazing victory. And his response to the goodness of God and the victory in his life is he gives what? A tenth, which would be the tithe. Well, Abraham did that because he was under, under the law, right? Abraham is 400 years before the law. The tenth has nothing to do with the law. It has everything to do with gratefulness to God. Matter of fact, go over to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. Let's try verse 22. Um, okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, this is Jacob when Jacob is uh, fleeing, okay, from Laban. Remember, he's been in, uh, he has been in, uh, Laban's house. He was working for Rebecca. Remember that? And uh, Laban tricks him. And when he goes to his marriage bed that night, instead he gets Leah. Remember that? And then Laban says, hey, work another seven years for me and I'll give you my good looking daughter, Rebecca. Remember that? And, and finally, Jacob's gotten fed up and he's left Laban. He's afraid Laban's going to chase after him and kill him uh, on the deal. Uh, okay, here we go. Let's go to verse 10 real quick. Uh, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for the Haran. And after he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun was set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching up into heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it, he stood, stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And I, I, am, I am with you and I will watch over you and wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until you, I have done all that I promised you. And when Jacob woke up from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. I was not aware of it. He was, a, he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate to heaven. 
Early the next morning, Jacob took a stone and he placed it under his, under his head and he set up a pillar and he poured out oil on top of it and he called that place Bethel and though the city had been called, uh, used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, you ready? If God will be with me and will watch over me on my journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. Okay, so get the moment. Jacob is declaring, okay, here's the deal. You're not longer going to be the God of my father. You're going to be my God. I'm going to follow you. If you're going to take care of me, I'm going to obey. I'm going to follow you. You ready for his first act of obedience? So that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone I have set up as a pillar will be in the God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you what? A tenth. Isn't it interesting that in the very moment that Jacob declared, God, you are my God, his first act of worship was to give what? A tenth. 400 years before the law. The tenth has nothing to do with the law. It has everything to do with gratitude. And again, just one real quick passage. If that's not enough for you, uh, go to Luke chapter 11. You can tell I'm passionate about this. Luke chapter 11. Okay. This is uh, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 42. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. So he says, look, here's the deal. You're, you're, you're obeying me. And matter of fact, here's what a Pharisee would do. A Pharisee was so strict and legalistic, they did not want to short God one single seed out of their seed bag. And so a Pharisee would sit down and go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine seeds, one for God. One, two, all the way through their seed bag. Because they were not going to miss one seed and miss one seed's worth of the tenth. That's how strict they were in paying the tenth. Okay? So here's Jesus in that moment saying, look, here's the deal. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, which was a tiny little herb, tiny little seed. But you neglect justice and love of God. Are you ready? You should have practiced the latter. You should have practiced giving the tenth. Without leaving out the former. So think about this. Here's Jesus saying, you should have been tithing. Tithing was fine. But the problem is while you tithe, you neglect the more heartfelt things you should have been doing. So Jesus affirms the tithe. Because he said to the Pharisees, you should have been doing that. You were right. You just didn't do the rest when you did that. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, the tithe was before the law, and the tithe is after the law. Matter of fact, and I won't make you guys turn there, but if you, go, if you want to read whether or not the church is tithe, should be a tithing church, Acts chapter 2, as the church gets instituted, every single believer in the church is bringing what to the church? Their tithe, and the problem is it's not enough. The church is in trouble financially. So what does Acts say that the believers went out and did? They went out and sold everything they had, brought it into the church, and held it in common. That was New Testament giving. So if you want to argue that the tithe died in the Old Testament, and you want to be a New Testament giver, 
I, I don't think you even want to go there. Be happy with the tithe. Be happy with the tithe. Because New Testament believers were selling everything they had and bringing it to the cause of Christ and saying, look, use it however you got it. And they had it all in common. That was New Testament modeling. Way, 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 way beyond the tithe. Okay, thank you for asking that. Okay, I'll give you $5 later. Verse 16. Back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them, both the Jew and the Gentile, to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Why is the cross the thing that reconciles the Jew and the Gentile? Why is the cross the pivotal moment in the conversation? Because when... Here we go. Hello? Yeah. It's when uh, Jesus died on the cross, he made, in God's sight, Jews and Gentiles the same. They made them alike. Because before the Jews were just God's people. How, let me ask this question. How did Jews get saved? If you are an Old Testament Jew, how do you get saved? So someone said the law. Let me ask a question. Can, Can someone get saved by the law? Why? Why can no one get saved by the law? There you go. Because here's the deal. That the the law basically says, if you want to go to heaven, obey the law. The problem is this. How many people in history have ever been able to obey the law? One. His name was Jesus. Every other person in history was a lawbreaker. And here's the problem. Remember we said... Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's what just that's what the law demands. The law says you break the law, you must be punished. The law does not know grace. The law does not know forgiveness. And the and the answer of the law is if you break the law, you go to jail. In this case, you break the law, you go to hell. Period. Period. And guess how many law breaks you get before you get punished? None, because the first one sends you. One is too many. No one, no one made it to heaven by the law. So, because the Jews had the law, and so now they sat there and they said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I know I'm a lawbreaker. What did God say to the Jews to do? Take the lamb. Take the lamb. And guys, you can't miss this because if, if, you, if you stop and, and hear, sometimes we think the Old Testament's kind of weird and, and musty and stuff. There are so many unbelievably powerful pictures in the Old Testament. And what they're doing is all foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do. So now you get to the Feast of Passover and you get to this moment where, Jesus, where God says, look, here's the deal. I'm going to send the, ready? The angel of death through Israel and through Egypt. On that night, if you want to be spared, take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood from the lamb, put it on the doorpost of your house. And some theologians, I don't know whether you want to go there or not, but some theologians say, hey, if you have the bowl of blood sitting here and now you put it up over the top of your doorway and you put the blood on either side of your doorway, what sign does that make? Who knows? Who knows? Who cares? But here's the important part. 
They were putting blood on the door to their house. Interesting, Jesus said, I am the way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Okay? And so he said, put the blood on the... And when I see the blood, what did God say he would do? I will pass over you. And what you need to know is that everything they were doing in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices were unbelievably powerful pictures of Jesus dying on the cross. Matter of fact, think about this. On the day of Passover, and I'll go real quick because we've said this before. Um, when they were getting ready to do the Passover feast, you had to take the lamb. Anybody know on what day of the month? Anybody know? Tenth day of the month. Tenth day of the month, you had to take that spotless, perfect lamb. You tied him up and you staked him in your front yard. And you were supposed to watch the lamb for four days to make sure there was no blemish, no disease. He didn't have any ticks or mental pro- you had to watch the lamb and make sure for four days he was perfect when jesus was living and as he's finishing the end of his ministry on the 10th day of the month he enters jerusalem 10th day of the month of niacin you and i call it palm sunday and on palm sunday what did the jews in jerusalem do when jesus came riding in on the donkey They all threw palm branches down and they said, Hail the King of the Jews. Guess what they went home and did an hour later? Chose their lamb. Think about the picture, guys. They just declared Jesus their king. An hour later, they choose the lamb. That lamb stayed there for four days waiting And then they had to go kill the lamb. Remember when Jesus, four days later, is being hung on a cross. And remember that the priests go to the Romans and say, we have to get this guy to die quicker because we're getting ready to have a holy festival. Remember that? So they're going to break his legs. Remember that part? Guess what the holy festival they're getting ready to have is? Passover. So Jesus dies and now they go home and guess what they do? They eat the lamb. They just killed the lamb. And now they kill the lamb and eat the lamb. Literally everything that's happening in that feast, that ceremonial law, is being fulfilled right in front of their eyes in real time. So how did Old Testament believers come to be believers? Not by obeying the law. It was that ceremonial law that they were play-acting. They were playing with dolls. They were playing with toy cars. That one day they would have the real lamb, and they would hang that real lamb on a cross, and that real lamb would shed his blood to cover their doorposts of their hearts. Every Old Testament believer, he may not have even realized it, got saved by believing that one day God would send the lamb. Think about this. Okay. Abraham. Abraham is told to sacrifice his son. Does that sound familiar at all? Okay. 
He goes up Mount Horeb. He's getting ready to sacrifice his son. Remember, he ties up Isaac. He puts his hands back. The Bible says he raises the knife to plunge it into Abraham. I mean, into Isaac. Remember that moment? And then the angel of the Lord stops him. And again, a lot of Bible scholars will say, we think that's Jesus who comes and stops Abraham. And says, Abraham, don't do that. God has provided what? A ram in the thicket. And when Abraham takes that ram, okay, sacrifices it in place of his own physical son. And think about this, guys. It's as if God is saying, what I will not actually require you to do, Abraham, I will one day require myself. And when Abraham sacrifices that ram, he names the place. Do you remember what he names the place? God will provide. And it's a foreshadowing that one day God would provide the lamb that they needed for atonement. That had to be the sacrifice. And the Old Testament is rich and rich and full of it. And they didn't necessarily see it. But you and I have the privilege of knowing the answer and looking back and we go, oh my goodness, there's Jesus there and there's Jesus there and there's Jesus there again. Because you and I get to see it from the end of the story instead of the beginning of the story. So the answer is simply this. Every person in the Old Testament got saved, became a Christian, became a believer by looking forward to that lamb. That would, they were looking forward to the cross. They couldn't have described a cross, but they were looking forward to the day that God would provide. Every person today gets saved, how? By looking back to the cross. By believing that God did provide. And the answer is, every man, every woman, every child for all of eternity has been saved the same way by looking to a cross, even if they didn't fully understand it was a cross. By believing that God provides. Okay, verse 17. Hey, Lynn. Yeah. On the diagram that you had up there on the board. Yes. So on the moral side of the law. Yes. Jesus offers mercy yes. for those things if somebody commits those things. Yes. Okay. And then on the ceremonial side, he offered Jesus as the sacrifice. He offers fulfill as the it. fulfillment. Yeah. Do I so, have that straight? Yeah. And if you okay. think about it, it's kind of a neat thing. You say the moral side of the law condemned me. And if you think about it, the ceremonial side was always a picture of Jesus. So the ceremonial side rescued me. If you think about it that way. Right. In other words, the moral side is what made me guilty. The ceremonial side is what gave me pardon. In the picture on the deal. And here's the problem, guys, is that. Every person who says, hey, look, 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 I, I don't need a savior. I'm good enough. What you're really saying is I'm willing to take my chances with the moral side of the law because that's what's going to happen one day in heaven. You're going to stand in front of God. and He's going to say, OK, all right, you decided you're going to heaven by being good enough. Let's just let's pile up all of your good stuff. Let's pile up all of your bad stuff, which, guys, I'm just telling you, you got to get bad stuff will outweigh your good stuff. It just will. It, it will outweigh your good stuff. And when God begins to do the... Everyone will go, oh. Okay. And you say, well, then how, how's that possible? How can, how can 
the bad stuff outweigh the good stuff for everybody? I mean, what about Mother Teresa? What about Gandhi? And if you're asking that, you don't, you don't understand when it comes to bad stuff, it's not about how big or heavy it is. It's about contamination. Okay? And some of you heard me tell this story before. I'll, t- I'll try and tell it real quick. If you had a bottle of water and I spit in it, you want to drink that bottle of water? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. The water is still clear. Matter of fact, if I shake it up real good, you can't even see where my spit is. Okay, all right, let's, let's go a step further. You have a bottle of water. I take that bottle of water. I take one spoonful, one spoonful of water out of my toilet. And I put it in your bottle of water. You ready to drink that water? But wait, 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 wait a minute. That bottle is still... What, 95% the original pure water. I only put one spoonful. And if you think about it, that spoonful of water I took out of my toilet, probably it was like 80 or 90%. There was probably only 10% germs. So the germs in that water are way less than 1%. So 99% pure water, just 1% toilet stuff. I mean, surely the good outweighs the bad, right? Why won't you drink my water? contaminated and there's your answer to sin see when you go up to god and say god no 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 no! i did all these good things my name's mother Teresa," and he goes contaminated because even one germ makes it dirty that's why no one's ever won the good enough argument with god that's why Jesus, when remember they said to Jesus, Jesus, you're good. And Jesus says, why are you calling me good? There's only one good in the world, and that's God. Everything else is not good. It's why all of our good works are as filthy rags to the Lord. This isn't about how much. It's about the fact that there's any bad is too much bad. Any toilet water in my water is too much toilet water. Any sin is too much sin. For a righteous God. Hand up. Yep. Yep. Um, in the Old Testament, what was the purpose? Or they, had, they did the sacrifices on the holidays according to their customs. Right. Day of Atonement <clears throat> was the day they had to go actually to the temple. Yep. Okay. Now, if they did that, were they uh, reconciled? They, they weren't redeemed. Right. Because they were doing an act of obedience. Yes. What exactly did they get from that reconciliation to live another year? Yeah. There you go. So here's, here's what would happen. Okay, so here was the question. Let me see if I can answer it real quick. The question was, okay, I go, I take my lamb to the temple. It's the day of atonement. The priest kills my lamb on my behalf on the altar. And then I have to come back a year later. So what's that all about? Well, here's what it was. God said, look, when you brought me the lamb, You were obeying me and you were saying, in essence, in the moment you brought that lamb, I get that I can't take care of my own sin. I have got to bring an animal to atone for my sin. It's where we get the word scapegoat from. See, my stuff is going on the goat. Okay, so it's the scapegoat. And so here's what God says for one year, because you did that act of faith, because you said, I realize I can't fix my own sin. And I'm I know something has to die for my sin. Blood has to be shed for one year. I will blink at your sin. It's as if I close my eyes 
But I want you to come back next year and remind yourself and remind your heart, you can't fix your own sin. So you're going to bring that lamb again and you're going to put it on that altar and say, I know that my sin's not fixed. I know it's not taken care of, but I know one day it will be. And I'm going to bring my lamb back again and I'm going to do it again to say to God and everybody that sees me do this, I know I can't fix my sin. I know I'm not good enough. Something has to die for me. I acknowledge that truth. And that act of faith said, okay, I believe a Savior is coming. And that's what they were doing. Now, as time went on, you know, when we get into the era of the bad kings and everything, that's sort of an extreme period. Yes. These laws were still in place. Yes. Day of Atonement and all. If people did not sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, is there any commentary in the Old Testament as what came of them? Yeah, as best we understand, if you chose not to sacrifice, then you were not doing that act of faith. You were not fulfilling that ceremonial part of the law, and you would have been outside of the nation. You would have been outside, and you would have ended up outside of God for not doing that. So stop and think about this, guys. I mean, here's the logical part of the rest of that question. If the way the Jews were making atonement to God, day of atonement, I'm going to take my lamb, I'm going to sacrifice my lamb, and then God is going to overlook my sin for a year. If, if, if you're a Jew and don't believe that the Savior has come, okay, think about this thing. I'm a Jew, I don't believe the Savior has come. Then you need to do what every single year? Take a lamb. You need to take a lamb to the temple every single year on the Day of Atonement. Offer the lamb so that God will wink at your sin for one more year. Why is that interesting? The temple hasn't been around since 70 AD. Remember Jesus walking said, one day this this building, this temple here will be completely destroyed. 70 AD, Titus invades Jerusalem. The temple's gone for 2,000 years ever since Messiah The Jews have not been able to offer a sacrifice. If you're a Jew, where does that leave you? See, the truth is, if you're a Jew and really, really think about the requirements of God and what he's asked, you you need to be building that temple again now. Because you have no place to take your sacrifice on the Day of Atonement if you still need to sacrifice. Why is it okay? Because the sacrifice is done. The cross is over. There's no need to do that anymore. Jesus fulfilled the law. Okay, here we I go. Have a question. Whoa, whoa, all right. I need to camp one more time, just a little bit longer on that abolishment of sin. I get the moral thing and I get the ceremonial. Where does Leviticus fall in that? Because it has moral and it kind of has ceremonial, and I don't get it. Sometimes it seems like it, we just pick and choose what works. Okay, so what you end up with, and it's, it's, I, think it's, I think it's fairly easy. I mean, when, when, I, when you read Leviticus and it says, um, uh, on, the, on the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll go outside of your house, you'll clean all the leaven out of your house, and then you'll dwell in tents for a while. I don't, I don't think it's, it's that hard to go, okay, look, there's nothing moral about living in tents. There's, this has got to be, there's nothing right or wrong about this. It's got to be part of this ceremonial law that's a foreshadowing. And if you think about it, then what did God do? God took the children of Israel. They ended up captive in Egypt and they, 
then came back and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and lived in tents. So you end up with all these pictures and foreshadowing of what God was going to do with the nation of Israel. So I don't think it's that hard to go through when it says thou shalt not boil a goat in its mother's milk. That's not moral. It's ceremonial. It's dietary. Thou shalt not eat any unclean thing. Right? Well, you and I still have that law in some ways, right? Because you and I are not supposed to do anything that's unrighteous or unholy in our lives. It's picturing what was to come. Does that make sense? Okay. But when you start saying stuff like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, clearly moral absolutes. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother, moral absolute. The morality never got changed. The ceremonial did. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. We're getting, what's, how much time do we have? We've got about five minutes. All right. Here we go. We're going to blaze through like 30 verses. Here we go. All right, verse 17. He came and preached peace to you that were far away and peace to those who were near. Who were the ones that were far away? Gentiles were far away. Who were the ones that were near? Jews. Isn't it interesting that now, who are the ones that are far away? The Jews, who are the ones that are nearest to the cross? The Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? It's also one of the reasons, guys, I believe that the tribulation period... Remember, and you've heard us talk about that, is all about calling Israel back near to the cross. It's not about calling the church. The church is already near. It's about calling Israel back to the cross during the tribulation period, because now they are far. Um, verse 18, for the, through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Okay, we'll stop on that one. Let's do this one together. You now have access to the Father by one spirit. What is that talking about? Why is that a big deal to get access to the Father? Okay, the Jews had it reserved, but stop and think about this. Did the Jews even have access to God? No, no. See, when the Jew wanted to go get forgiveness, who did he have to take his lamb to? He had to go through the priest. To the priest. Okay? If the Jew wanted to make any sort of offering or sacrifice, who did he have to go to? The priest. And here's the interesting thing is that when you went and looked in the temple, you had the holy place... But you actually had the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Remember Indiana Jones found it? Remember that? Okay. So you had the Holy of Holies here, which was where the presence of God dwelt. Think about this. In the Old Testament, they don't have the Holy Spirit. People who are, do not have the presence of God in their lives. Okay? The only place the presence of God dwelt was in the Holy of Holies. And who had access to the Holy of Holies? A priest, and it had to be... How, how many priests had access to the Holy of Holies? One. How often did he have access to the Holy of Holies? Once a year. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would take a portion of that blood that they had spilt for the whole nation. He would take it and pour it on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, here's the deal. When he walked behind that curtain in the temple to the Holy of Holies, he had to be completely confessed up. He, his life had to be right with God. Because if he wasn't right with God, if he had left some place in his life still sinful, guess what God would do to the, to the priest? Kill him. So here's what they would do. When the priest got ready to go in and offer the sacrifice, offer the, the blood, they would put bells on the bottom of his robe. So they could hear when he was in there doing the ceremony, they could hear the bells dingle, 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 dingle. And if the bell stopped ringing, then they knew that God had done what? 
struck him dead because his life wasn't right. But here's the problem. You can't go into the Holy of Holies to get the dead priest out. So guess what they would do? Huh? Okay. They would take the crook of a shepherd's staff and they would feel around inside until they hooked him and then they would drag him out from under the curtain. Because you couldn't have access to the presence of God. Unless you were the high priest of the priest, completely pure, and then once a year. Think about this, guys, and we miss this a lot of times. When you read about the death of Jesus Christ, remember the moment he dies, remember the sky turns black, remember the Bible says, and there was a great earthquake. Remember that part? Those things are not even big. The biggest thing that happened in that moment is the Bible says that in the temple, that curtain got ripped in two. And God was saying, there is no longer a divider between us. You no longer have to fear to walk into my presence because I have finally paid the price. And every one of you who's a believer now stands holy in front of me. And you have access. It's a remarkable moment. You you just need to know, guys, you and I live in a blessed time because there's no other time in human history where the Spirit of God has lived in us. There's been no other time in the history of man where you and I had immediate communication to God and the right to have full access to His throne through prayer. It's amazing to me that Christians don't pray. You realize how many people have longed for the ability to know that their prayer had immediate access to God. And you and I have that because of Jesus dying on the cross. Here's the part that that also ought to say to us. You realize there are religious groups out there that to this day say, you cannot have access to God. If you want to confess your sins, you still have to go to... uh, That's a lie. It's a lie. And it's an absolute miss to what Jesus did on the cross for you. He gave you access to the Father. And don't you dare, don't you dare let a man take that away from you. Don't you let a religious system take that away from you. Jesus died to give you that access to the Father. Yep. And I, I, I don't mean to stretch this out, but yep. I, I, just a personal testimony. When I first heard a teaching on the temple 30 years ago, it blew my mind. Yeah. And I realized what a gift that that cross meant to me personally. And it was the moment of salvation for Hmm. me, understanding the temple and the Hmm. richness of Scripture, both old and new. And, and, you know, the name of, of this night is called the mine the depth and the riches in that mind that um, opened up eternity just Mm. for me. And the whole concept of grace became so real, I could taste it. Mm. And if I would, I would love for you to be able to teach about the temple. Yeah. And... I just believe that so many people would give their lives to the Lord if they could realize the richness of the Word of God, mm. old and new. Yeah. That's just a little personal test. We may get there. We may do that at some point. 
on the deal. But again, and you're right, the temple has unbelievable picture after picture after picture of Jesus when you start unwrapping uh, what was going on in the temple. Okay, I think we're there. That's time, right? All right, let's, let's close in prayer and we'll be good. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the truth. And God, maybe, maybe tonight, uh, the thing we thank you for is that we are no longer under the law that uh, we no longer have to stand before you and answer for our sins, but instead we live by looking back to a cross and what you did on that cross for us. And God, thank you for the fact that in the midst of that, you gave us access to yourself, that no longer do we have to wait for a priest to take our requests to you or to take our sacrifices to you. We now have absolute full access God, help us not to neglect prayer and help us never to hesitate to run into the presence of our Father. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you guys.